We're going to jump right into the message, which I've titled Chaos. We're going to sit in a few different stories in David's life this morning that are just absolutely chaotic. You don't need to raise your hands, but I'm sure many of you can feel like life is chaotic, especially if you got little kids, right, moms? And all the moms said amen, but they're, but they're not awake because they're all asleep because they need to rest right now. Listen, my, my personal life right now, I am thin. I am thin mentally. I am thin physically, which causes me to be thin spiritually. And that's not because my life is chaotic. My life is extremely ordered. Right now, I'm trying to keep up with the pace of my wife, and it's going to kill me. So John and Peggy can amen that. Paul can aim them, amen that. I'm trying to keep up with Paul, too. It's like almost twice my age, and he's got the energy of a 16-year-old. Where does he get it from, Carol? She doesn't have a clue either. She just tries to... And you want to put a leash on them, stake them in the ground just to keep them from not being so busy. Anyways, I'm thin. And in that thinness... Um, I really need this morning. Last week was awesome going out to the amphitheater because of the construction, the remodel stuff that we have going on here. It's a lot of fun. But I need this morning. I need routine. I need to worship God. I need to not just worship God by myself, but I need to worship God with you. Sunday mornings for me, this is not work. There's a lot of work that leads up to Sunday mornings, but for me, this is the rest my mind needs. This is the rest my body's going to get after this because I'm going to take a very long nap today so that I can be refreshed. This is the rest my spirit needs because our God is not a God of chaos. He is a God of order. And regardless of, like, my circumstances are not going to change tomorrow. I'm in the midst of a really busy project at work that's been going on for eight months. I'm almost to the finish line of it, and there's already the next project lined up after that. My work life is going to stay just as busy. Ministry does not slow down. There are always needs. There are always projects. It's good. It's an order. It's a structure. The family life, there's, it's constantly changing in those dynamics and those pressures. I have a good life. I have a restful life. I have a peaceful life. I have a structured life. But sometimes it feels extremely chaotic in its fullness and in its busyness. As we get into David's story this morning, the chaos is the result of sin. Some of it's David's, some of it's other people's. The chaos comes from culture. And we're going to watch a few, in these few different stories, we're going to watch God bring about order. And that order in the life, the peace in the life, it comes through different means and different circumstances. But even the order that comes out in the stories today, it's really chaotic in the flesh. There's, again, the Old Testament stories, there's a whole bunch that just makes us uncomfortable. It's weird, and we're just going to jump right into it. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel 20. In this scene, Absalom's coup has failed. It's resulted in his death. A couple weeks ago, we talked about David returning as the king, which required all of the tribes to recognize David as king, to ask for David to be king once again, even after they had just rejected him and received his son. 
So we're sitting in all these different dynamics as Jesus, as Jesus, we'll get to him in a minute, as David is returning back as king, as the tribes are gathering together, there's not unity. There's not a unity of voice. There's not a unity of purpose. There's not a... There's just not unity. And when we sit in disunity, that is what often brings about chaos in our minds and our lives. If you are not unified with the will of God in your life, is there chaos? Absolutely. You're going to feel it spiritually. You're going to feel it mentally. You're going to feel it as you speak. You're going to feel it as you act. If you are not in line, in love and obedience and worship to your creator, there's going to be chaos in your life because there's, it's there's a disunity going on. If your household is not unified, it's chaotic. If your job, the culture, all of these things can cause chaos in our lives. And the culture here, we ended in the first couple of verses of chapter 20. In this, there is a rejection of David. So you have a rebel. This man, Sheba, is defined as a worthless man. He's a son of Belial. He's a son of worthlessness is what this, this label over his life means. In contrast to Sheba and the tribes who follow him, the 10 tribes of Israel that follow him, again, we think that Levi is the tribe that's missing from this list. There's 12 tribes of Israel. So you have the 10 that are in line with Sheba in rebellion. You only have one tribe that's identified as remaining loyal to the king. And it's one of these ideas that sits as we sit in this disunity and the chaos of the circumstances. Um, sit in the statistic just in our own culture and our own time. And again, we, we don't want to apply this in a, in a broad brush or anything, but let's just use it as an example. That one out of 12 are remaining loyal to Jesus, but 11 out of 12 are not. There's a uselessness, a worthlessness that's this banner over these lives. That's really, that's a hard statistic to sit in, is, is we just listen to Corey share the gospel. There's a consequence to sin. But we have an incredible creator who is madly in love with us. We're going to see in this morning's passage that we, as believers in Jesus Christ, we are defined as God's inheritance. Which means in all the stuff that God made for himself, he wants you. You're what he gets. Is God the winner or are we the winner? I look at my mirror and myself in the mirror sometimes and says, Lord, you got a bad deal. <laughs> Where is inheritance? We are what he values. We are who he loves. And he's created us to image. So in this, I want to be one of the 12 that remains loyal. And again, often in my heart, in the chaos of my own mind and my own soul, I can find myself in rebellion to the will of God. Why? Because I'm thin, because I'm tired, because I have other desires. I have another will. I have other wants. And I'm not submitting myself to the one who is truly my master. And I want nothing other than his will to be performed in my life. But I often will find myself in opposition to his will. And he's got to correct me and wash me and change me and transform me into his image, right? 
So as we sit in this disunity that's going on in the culture, there's one tribe, the tribe of Judah, that is remaining loyal to the king. The other 10 are with the rebel and this contrast. As we go through, there's going to be a few stories that we're going to sit in this morning that, again, it's going to, we're going to watch this chaos in some kind of order being brought about, and how that order is brought out each time I think is going to make us uncomfortable. Welcome to the Word of God. Verse 3 says, Now David came to his house at Jerusalem. I got a ring again, Gabe, just so you know. And the king took the ten women, his concubines, whom he had left to keep the house, and put them in seclusion and supported them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up to the day of their death, living in widowhood. Still got major ring, not major, but a decent ring. Um, Here's the chaos that's going on in these women's life. This is totally foreign to our culture. Everything that we see in this, it's foreign, it's unacceptable, it's, it's strange, it's sin, it's, it's a mess. For these 10 women, this is the culture that they grew up in. So their life is still chaotic, but it's not as messy for them, maybe, or it's a lot more messy than we can even imagine as we try and sit in their context. This is their context. These women were born into households. In the households and culture and time that they were born into, they were seen as possessions and property, a commodity to be negotiated with. These women are all seen as Saul's concubines, that when David became king after Saul, David inherited these women. So not only did these women sit in their household context where their fathers treated them as a commodity, the first king, Saul, treated them as a commodity. When uh, David becomes king, they now become the next king's commodity. And when David is fleeing from his son Absalom, these are the 10 women, women that he chooses to leave behind to maintain the household. It's seen as that because there's probably international treaties that are involved for the nation to keep peace with these other countries around them. It would be in Israel's best interest to preserve the relationship of these concubines, the status that they have in the political commodity that they are. So they remain behind. Absalom rapes every single one of them. Now, as David comes back into Jerusalem as king, he takes those 10 women who are his concubines and he sets them in a house under guard. They're in seclusion for the rest of their days. Chaotic. Miserable. How did they, how did, what did these women, what did their lives look like? I don't have a clue. We don't have that testimony. What we have is the mess of a series of events in their life. And this is the order that gets brought about in their life in, for the rest of their days. This is it. I hope that they had wonderful relationship with each other as sisters where they supported and helped each other all, the, all their days in sickness and in health and as they aged and passed away. We don't have any testimony in regards to the children that they born, sons and daughters, how they were cared for. All we know is that David is obeying the law. He is not going to return back to them physically because of Absalom's sin with them. For David to return back, 
that's against the law of the time. David is obeying the law by not turning them out, but by continuing to care for them for the rest of their life. This is the, this is the, uh, the snapshot that I walk away from these women's lives. Sometime you are going to live in a external and internal chaos all of your days. Is there still hope in that scene? Absolutely. God is still good. God still attended to these women. He still saw them. He still loved them. I hope that, the, I hope that they found in Yahweh their spouse as they remained in a widowhood all the days of their life in their circumstance. Next messed up story, verse 4 says, The king said to Amasa, Assemble the men of Judah for me within three days and be present here yourself. So Amasa went to Gabe. I still got a ring, so just turn my gain down and I'll yell. Um, so Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. Want me to use Gabe's mic or uh, Caleb's microphone? He's going to fix it. Okay. Sorry, total distraction to my ear. Okay, so Amasa went to assemble the men of Judah, but he delayed longer than the set time which David had appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants, uh, that being Joab, and pursue him, lest he find himself fortified cities and escape us. So Joab's men, with the Carathites and the Pelathites and all the mighty men, went out after him. And they went out of Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at a large stone, which is in Gibeon, Amasa came before them. Now Joab was dressed in battle armor. On it was a belt with a sword fastened in its sheath at his hip, and as he was going forward, it fell out. Then Joab said to Amasa, Are you in health, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand and kissed him. But Amasa did not notice the sword that was in Joab's hand, and he struck him with it in the stomach, and his entrails poured out on the ground, and he did not strike him again, thus he died. Chaotic, insane. So here's David as king. David has just been rejected by 10 of the tribes. And as he's returning back into Jerusalem, his role as king is to bring about unity. So he says to his nephew Amasa, now remember Amasa sided with Absalom. Absalom and Amasa would have been cousins. Amasa was appointed as Absalom's general. As David is returning as king, David rejects Joab to some degree because Joab is the one who killed his son, Absalom, and appoints Amasa as the general of his army. So he calls Amasa to himself. He says, we need to hunt Shoba down because this is going to be bad. You need to go assemble as many men as possible, and you need to meet me back here within three days. For whatever reason, we don't know why, Amasa fails to achieve the goal that David set before him. So, 
David doesn't call Joab to himself. He calls Joab's brother Abishai. So both Joab, Abishai, and Amasa, these are three nephews of David, Abishai and Joab being brothers. He calls Abishai to himself. He says, you, you need to take your lords, you need to take Joab's men, and you need to go hunt Shoba, and you need to take care of this man now, because if he remains free, the harm that he's going to do to the nation is going to be worse than the harm that Absalom has done to the nation. So as Abishai is heading out, Amasa is heading out at the same time. And in that, Joab is keeping a distance from David and all the tension that they have going on. But Joab has been replaced by Amasa. So Joab and Amasa now have issues, right? They're cousins. They're blood. They're family. Joab, we have watched him kill Abner, who was Solomon's general. We watched him violently kill Absalom, and now we watch him violently kill Amasa. Every single one of these murders that, uh, that Joab engages in, they're the product of a very violent man and a very violent mind, and he is seeking to preserve his own. So how this works out, it's, it's kind of hard to see, but in some way, Joab gets his sword out of his sheath. He stumbles, he falls, his sword falls out of its sheath. He does it on purpose so that he picks it up with his left hand. His left hand is not his fighting hand. So as he comes to Amasa, this is Joab's Judas moment. He comes to his cousin, to his blood, to his brother, puts his right hand on the beard, on the face of his family and leans in to kiss, a kiss of affection publicly, hiding his violence in his left hand that Amasa ignores. It's non-threatening, and he's going to his family member in for this public display of affection between cousins. And Joab guts him. He doesn't see it coming, but Joab's got murder in his heart continually. This is, this is chaotic. This is not David's will. This is not God's will. This is Joab's will being performed in this circumstance. And in this chaos, again, like this is, this is his Judas moment where he is betraying a family member with a kiss. We sit with Judas in the violence of his heart and everything that he had going on, betraying our Savior with a kiss. Again, the, the imagery is equal. Next verse says, Joab and Abishai, his brother, so they leave this guy dead in the road. Joab and Abishai pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. Meanwhile, one of Joab's men stood near Amasa and said, whoever favors Joab, whoever delights in Joab, and whoever is for jo David, follow Joab. In other words, ignore the violence. Don't pay attention to this. If you're for Joab, if you delight in him, if you're for David, keep on walking, keep on following. Ignore the murder that just occurred in the middle of the street. Amasa is wallowing in his blood in the middle of the highway. And when the man saw that all the people stood still, he moved Amasa from the highway to the field and threw a garment over him. And when he saw that everyone who came upon him halted, when he was removed from the highway, all the people went after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. That's nice. 
This guy's a distraction. Drag his dead body off the road. Put him in the field. Cover him with a garment. Everybody keep on going to battle. Chaotic. How do you get from chaos to order in your soul, in your spirit, in your body, in your circumstance? It, it demands us to press into the wisdom of God. We're going to press into this image right now. We're going to see a wise woman. When you sit in Proverbs, Proverbs, wisdom is personified as a female. This, here is this wise woman. In all of your getting, get wisdom. In all of your getting, get knowledge and understanding and wisdom for the Lord. Pursue wisdom. Pursue the knowledge of the holy. In all of your getting, get wisdom. And this lady is the one that ends up bringing about in this scene as we spiritualize it, order to the nation at this moment. So verse 14 says, He went through all the tribes of Israel to Abel, and Beth Makkah and all the, uh, the Barites. So he, they're going to the very north end of the nation of Israel, northern side of the tribe of Dan. Says, so they were gathered together and also uh, went after Sheba. Then they came and besieged him in Abel and Beth Makkah, and they cast up a siege mound against the city, and it stood by the rampart. And all the people who were, who were with Joab battered the wall to throw it down. Remember the scene. This is civil war. There is a rebellion that needs to be dealt with in the disunity and the chaos that is going on. Here you have one tribe that is going to another tribe in the nation of Israel that are representing the children of God, and they have laid siege. They have encircled this city. They are building up siege weapons against this city for the sole purpose of tearing down the wall to get this singular man, but they're going to kill anybody that gets in their way. Verse 16, then a wise woman, she young, she old, She's somewhere in between. We don't know. Here's a wise woman. She cries out from the city, Hear, hear! Please say to Joab, Come nearby that I may speak with you. And he came near to her. The woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. She said to him, Hear the words of your maidservant. And he answered, I'm listening. So she said, They used to talk in former times, saying, they shall surely seek guidance at Abel, so they would end disputes. I am among the peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city and a mother in Israel. Why would you swallow up the inheritance of the Lord? Listen, listen to this lady's wisdom. Here's a, here's a, this is a great saying. Here's an encouragement for each one of our souls. Do you need guidance in your chaos? I know I do every single day. Here is this testimony of this community. People used to come to this community in former times looking for wisdom, looking for guidance. And when they came here seeking the Lord, guess what they found? They found the Lord, they found his wisdom, and they found his will, and it was the end of the chaos. It was the end of the disputes. Here was the reconciliation that came about. And she's getting Joab's attention. 
Joab, I am a peaceable woman. I am a faithful woman. I am shalom. I am faithful. I believe in Yahweh. Why are you here to take my life? Why are you here to swallow up, to devour, to consume the inheritance of the Lord? What a, what a, what a definition. Looking at the children of Israel, God reached down into humanity and chose a singular man, Abraham. He chose one to be a father of many, and his descendants are the chosen ones of God. Chose them specifically as his inheritance for him to make himself known to, for them to image, and for them to go out into all the world and to point to the true and living singular God, Yahweh. Amen? Image of the body of Christ today. We are to be peaceable, we are to be faithful, and we are to know and understand that all the children of God are his inheritance. Why would we seek to devour God's inheritance? Snaps him to attention. Joab answered and said, far be it, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That's not so. You know, making some excuses here, right? Look at what Joab just did in knifing Amasa. But a man from the mountains of Ephraim, Sheba, the son of Bichri by name, has raised his hand against the king, against David. Deliver him only, and I will depart from the city. So the woman said to Joab, watch. His head will be thrown to you over the wall. The woman, then the woman, in her wisdom, went to all the people and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. Then he blew the trumpet, and they withdrew from the city, every man to his tent. So Joab returned to the king at Jerusalem. Can you imagine? Wise woman, I am, I've told you often as we were going through these chapters, I am so glad we do not live in that era. We had enough violence in our own. But here, this, wiz, the, this wise woman is putting forth a spiritual principle that Jesus teaches us in the New Testament. As Jesus is teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, tells us if your right eye is causing you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. Here, physically, this woman is executing a man who has committed treason, who is in rebellion, who is putting her life at risk, her spouse, her children, her community. And this one man's life is being sacrificed because of his sin so that the whole community can be preserved. Cut it off. Radical. But again, I mean, you can imagine the scene. This man was executed. And you can see, I mean, it's almost comical if it's not so horrific. His head goes lobbing over the wall, and that is the sign for the tribe of Judah to now depart from this city, to leave the inheritance of the Lord alone and return back to the king in peace, cutting off the rebellion. This is a miserable chaotic historical reality 
My only application that gives me peace is applying it spiritually in my own life. I've got chaos in my soul. I got a rebel that's in my soul. And the only practical way forward to move with forward with my Savior is to radically cut off sin and rebellion in my life. And the only way that that is possible is through the power of the Holy Spirit. I cannot deal with my own rebellion. I cannot deal with my own wickedness. I can't deal with my worthlessness. I can't deal with my sin. I am fully incapable. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus, transform me into your image. That rebellious heart that is within me, Lord, that stiff neck, those ways that I attempt to drag you off of your throne and place myself in your place, those areas of my life where I am demanding my will and not your will, those areas of my life, Lord, where I am a disobedient son and not an obedient son, those areas of my life where I am speaking and doing hate rather than loving you with all of my mind, heart, soul, and strength. Through the truth of your word, through your sacrifice on the cross, through your resurrection from the grave, and through the power of your Holy Spirit that is within me. May I walk in victory, and may I walk in your order, and your truth, and your hope, and your love. Amen? It's the only way forward. That's it. If you got rebellion, if you got chaos, that prayer, that faith, the just shall live by faith. There's no law, there's no work, there's nothing that you can do other than hope and trust in his victory. That's it. And the scene of order is given to us in verse 23. We've got all of this chaos. We have this wise woman stepping in with the wisdom of God, dealing with the chaos in this particular circumstance. And then we get a snapshot of David's government in his order. Joab was over the army of Israel. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Carathites and the Pelathites. Adoram was in charge of the revenue. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was recorder. Shiva was scribe. Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira, the Jerite, was a chief minister, was literally a priest under David. Why is that even listed out in the context? Again, for me, it's, it's a spiritual application. There is a, a conveyance of in all of the chaos that David has to deal with as king now that he has returned. There is an order in all of the complexity and all of the disunity that's going on. There is an order and there is a structure to David's kingship, to his leadership, we can press into the inefficiencies of that and the efficiencies of it. But again, to me, what is being conveyed 
in the complex life of the children of God, God has an order and a structure for us that brings about his peace, that brings about his truth, and that brings about the right narrow path forward. All right, verse, uh, chapter 21 is a, another scene in David's life. This might not necessarily be in order. We don't know if this is before the events that we just read or after, or we don't know how much of a time gap there would have been after what we just read. But now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Year after year, and David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, it is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but were of the remnant, remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel. So here's the snapshot of the scene. Historically, you can go read this story in Joshua chapter 9. Not going to get into the details. There is a covenant between the children of Israel and the Gibeonites. This is centuries before. Saul, in his zeal, in his passion, in his service as king to the children of Israel, broke covenant with the Gibeonites and was seeking to exterminate them. David is now sitting in the next generation. He is sitting in the consequences of somebody else's sin. I want to pause here really quick. If any of you have ever heard and press into uh, the, the, it's a theology that teaches about, um, um, what's the generational sins called? What's the term? Is that what it's called? Generational sins? What is it? Generational curse. Thank you. There is a teaching in regards to generational curses, which is because my father played with a Ouija board and was into demonism in some fashion, the darkness that's going on in my life is because of my father's sin. Now, that teaching, there is a portion of truth, there is a portion of reality, but it is unbiblical. It is unbiblical because Jesus is the one who frees us from all sin. No demon has authority over me regardless of the behavior of my ancestors. My father's choices in his life, good or bad, have had impact in my life for sure. So did my grandfather's. So did my great-grandfather's. When you sit in the Old Testament, very clearly there is the consequences in current generations that are the result of prior generations. You see that repeatedly in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's not true. We are free from all curses. We are blessed because we are in Christ and we are in him alone. Yes, prior generations affect us today, but if, I mean, again, even in the Old Testament, Jesus, in, uh, it's in Ezekiel 18, God tells the Jews to remove that proverb out of their mouth that the children's teeth are on edge because the fathers ate sour grapes. Every single one of us is accountable to God for our own sin. And the one who sins 
your blood will be on your head, the one who turns from their sin and looks to God in faith. His life will be upon your head for all eternity. This is an example where God is bringing about a famine in David's day as a result of Saul's sin. More than likely, the reality is, is that as we're watching this division and disunity under David's kingdom, Saul's structure, whether it's his family or those who were for Saul, are still persecuting the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites, they, we are seeing that they have looked to Yahweh as their God all the way back from the time of Joshua. So the understanding is that the Gibeonites are crying out to God for justice, that they are crying out to God for vengeance, and God is answering their prayer with a famine in judgment upon the nation that has persecuted them and is persecuting them. So this is David now has the revelation from God, was through a prophet, however that came about, that the famine that is going on right now, the withholding of rain is the result of Saul's sin and the culture sin. What does David do about it? Chaos. This is messed up. Therefore, David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, we will have no silver or gold from Saul or from, that, or from his house nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, whatever you say, I will do. Then they answered the king, as for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. Then the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah. So again, there's Mephibosheth's a strange name, right? There's two of them. One was a son of Saul. The other is a grandson of Saul. The grandson is preserved. The son here is being turned over. Daughter, uh, the sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, whom she bore to Saul, and the five sons of Michael, the son of Saul, the daughter, sorry, the daughter of Saul, whom she brought up before Adriel, the son of Barzillai. Lots of names here. Uh, when it mentions Michael, that is seen, seen as a scribal heir. It's more than likely Saul's daughter, Merib, because Michael was married to David, and David put her away in earlier scenes. So it says, verse 9, he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first day in the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Rizpah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock 
from the beginning of the harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. And David was told what Rizbah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubines of Saul, had done. Then David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from the men of Jabesh Gilead, who had stolen them from the street to Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them up, after the Philistines had struck down Saul in Gilboa. So he brought up the bones of Saul and the bones of Jonathan, his son, from there. And they gathered the bones of those who had been hanged. They buried the bones of Saul and Jonathan and uh, his son in the country of Benjamin, in Zela, in the tomb of Kish, his father. So they performed all that the king commanded. And after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. Messed up? You want to teach it? <laughs> Me neither. Look at that, I'm out of time. This scene, when you read it on the surface, makes it seem like Yahweh is into human sacrifice. That here's a famine in the land. The famine is the result of sin. Kill some people that will atone for that sin and God will bring land, land, rain upon the land again. If you read it on the surface, you can read it that way, and that is not the heart of God. This is hard. So one, you have God is the one who has brought judgment on the land because of sin. That is true. God is the one at the end of this scene, now that there is a reconciliation between the Gibeonites and the children of Israel, that God is now hearing the prayer of the nation of Israel for the land to be healed. So that we for sure see the act of God. The process of reconciliation that's brought about for the Gibeonites is not the will of God. We are not told that God asked for the sacrifice of these men. We are not told that God asked for these men to be executed. We are not told that these seven men are guilty of sin. We are not told that these seven men are innocent. All that we're told is David goes and have a, has, there's something off with the Gibeonites. They have been sinned against and they are crying out to God and God is judging the people. That's the facts that David has. When David goes and interviews the Gibeonites and says, what do you want? David gives them what they want. We're not told that what they want is the heart and will of God. This is complicated, this is confusing, this is ugly, this is chaotic. What we are told is that the Gibeonites receive that payment of executing these seven sons of Saul, regardless of their guilt or innocence, that they are now satisfied with the payment that's been paid. And that they are now in their prayer. They have released Saul in the sense that he was a covenant breaker. He broke the vow. Payment has now been uh, repaid. It's been restored. There's a reconciliation. So now that they're not praying for a curse upon the children of Israel, that God is now free to bless in regards to these prayers. It's confusing. It's chaotic. It's fleshly. It's cultural. It's ugly. I don't like it. 
I don't like what it says about God because what I feel like it says about God, it's not saying about God. It's just really confusing and chaotic. Here's the line of peace and order of this scene that I receive spiritually. And this is what I receive. Atonement is necessary. When you sit in the vows that are made to God, God takes every single one of those vows in holy truth. Jesus tells us in the New Testament, let your yes be yes, and let your no be no. Anything beyond that is sin. If you break a yes, I don't care how big it is, and I don't care how small it is, God holds you accountable. You break your yes, that's a sin. I've broken yeses many times, that's a sin. You break your no, that's a sin. God is holy, we will reap what we sow, he will not be mocked. Every single sin, darkness, stain, demands a covering. The only covering we have is the sacrifice of Christ. The only atonement we have is his blood. There is part of that imagery that I don't understand. What is it that our God became a man? He became a man to suffer the death of a human sacrifice, to die the death that I deserve for all of my broken yeses and for all of my broken noes. For all of humanities, he became sin for us. His death, we are told it is substitutionary, that as he is dying on the cross, that as he is pouring out his blood, that that sacrifice and that sacrifice alone is what atoned for the sin of Saul, the sin of Blake, the sin of you the sins of all humanity. The resurrection, his victory over death, the testimony that we have that that death did pay and cover and remove and wash all sin is his resurrection. There is no law for you to do. There is nothing that you can perform that frees you from the curse of sin. We are told that through faith in Jesus Christ, the just shall live by faith. He is the one who was cursed for us as he hung on that tree and as he poured out his life the life of the eternal God. And all that that means, therein and therein alone, is how God is allowed to heed our prayers, to heal us, to reconcile us, to restore us, to bring about order in the midst of mental chaos, spiritual chaos, Chaos in the flesh, chaos in the home, in the job, in the culture. Jesus, and Jesus alone, is our king. 
In these scenes, worship team, come on. In this scene, again, it is messy. That's why I titled it chaos. I didn't even title it order. Even though we're watching God bring about order in the midst of all this flesh yuck. May God today, in the midst of my yuck, in the midst of yours, your homes, your whatever history may be of, of your family and culture that has been thrown up into your current and all of the yuck, the things of the culture that make us go ooh and make us want to cringe, may he bring about his order, his peace, his love, his joy, his strength. You know, I began this morning, I can't tell you how much I need this moment week by week. I need to come in here and worship our creator together with our voices and instruments in his word, in fellowship and laughter and joy with one another. I need communion. I need to remember his body. I need to remember his blood. I forget. So my brothers and my sisters, in the next couple of songs, you take communion together between you and your creator. You remember his sacrifice. You remember his blood. You remember the chaos of sin in your life. You remember his victory and the peace that he has brought about through his victory on the cross. You celebrate that. You walk in that. You preach that to yourself, and you preach that in boldness to any ear that will hear of his majesty and his love. Amen.